in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, violence, and addiction. Like most of you, we're obsessed with true crime. Even in our spare time, we'll tune into news coverage of high-profile cases. One such case that's currently ongoing is the trial of Richard Alexander Murdoch, or Alec Murdoch. On June 7, 2021, Murdoch's 52-year-old wife Maggie and 22-year-old son Paul were murdered at the family's hunting lodge. As background, Alec Murdoch was a prominent local attorney. He was also the one who discovered the bodies and made the initial 911 call. But suspicion soon fell on him, and he was arrested in July 2022. Part of the reason this case has attracted so much attention is that it concerns a veritable legal dynasty. The Murdoch family has long held sway in the low country of South Carolina. Three generations of Murdochs served as solicitor, or district attorney, of the Palmetto State's 14th Circuit District. But more recently, the family attracted controversy. In 2019, Paul was hit with three felony charges after his friend Mallory Beach died in a horrific boating accident, which occurred while the intoxicated young man was piloting the vehicle. Alec Murdoch was also admittedly dealing with a severe drug addiction, which he says prompted him to begin stealing from his own law clients. 
Prosecutors alleged that these issues boiled under the surface, eventually culminating when Alec Murdoch ultimately murdered his own family members. The trial is currently underway in the 14th Circuit of the South Carolina Circuit Court, having started back on January 25, 2023. Creighton Waters is the chief prosecutor for the state. Attorneys Jim Griffin and Dick Harputlian are defending Murdoch. Judge Clifton Newman is presiding over the trial. The media has followed this case closely, including national outlets, documentaries, podcasts, local press, and more. And we've been following it, too. We imagine plenty of you are also keeping an eye on it. We've been talking about this case behind the scenes. Recently, we also chatted with a source who is available to talk through aspects of the trial so far. We figured we'd share our conversation with him. This is a criminal defense attorney from the western part of the United States. We've talked to him about a number of cases on the show before. We know his identity and his credentials, but we're keeping him anonymous because he still practices law. The attorney is going to share his thoughts on the cross-examination of Alec Murdoch, the evidence against the once powerful attorney, and other observations that could indicate where this trial is going. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Murdoch Murders, a defense perspective on the trial. Yeah, this is a very uh, in-depth and, and complicated case, so it would be hard to cover the case and start to finish in one episode, certainly. But what this case involves is a prominent attorney named Alec Murdoch. Uh, that's his nickname. I believe his first name is Richard Alexander Murdoch, but he goes by Alec Murdoch from South Carolina, a place called Hampton County, which I understand is about an hour and a half from Charleston in a place called the Low Country. And Alec Murdoch has been a prominent attorney carrying on uh, the family tradition of prominent attorneys in this area for about 100 years, with Alec being an attorney for about the last 25 years. I think he's 54 years old right now. 
and his family has had a stranglehold, I guess, for lack of better terminology, on both the prosecutor's office up until recently and the plaintiff's personal injury market in South Carolina, in, in Hampton County, South Carolina. One thing that I think is important for people to understand about that is that, you know, so basically for the last hundred years, you know, with maybe the last 10 years being an exception, one family has controlled the prosecutor's office for five counties, a five county region. They call it solicitor down there, but it's the same thing as district attorney. And that same family has also been the preeminent plaintiff's uh, law firm, has controlled the preeminent plaintiff's law firm. Well, neither of us is from South Carolina, but like that seems very odd from my perspective. Is it, Do you share that perspective? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's you know an inherent conflict of interest. I mean, we get, uh, as defense attorneys, we get upset when the prosecutors spoon feed these really good personal injury cases that arise out of their criminal cases, whether they be auto accidents or, you know, sex abuse cases or what have you. But what I see in, in my jurisdiction is prosecutors spoon feeding these, you know, multi-million dollar plaintiff's cases to their buddies who they used to work with in the DA's office who are now plaintiff's lawyers. And that bothers us as defense lawyers, but there's nothing we can really do about it. Um, I don't think that's unethical um, as long as there's no type of uh, hidden kickback back to the prosecutor. I don't think there's anything unethical about that. The difference with that situation and what we have in the, in the Murdoch family is, you know, you have one family who's doing both functions, essentially prosecuting people, deciding who does and doesn't have to go to jail within this five-county region, and also uh, being the primary person to collect money uh, on behalf of injured persons for this region. And so you have to think that they were prosecuting and then taking the plaintiff side of the same cases, which I believe is, is potentially a conflict of interest. And you also have to think that people were afraid to go against them on their plaintiff's cases for fear of being prosecuted. So that gives them a tremendous amount of leverage and power in this rural region of South Carolina. So that's, that's a long answer to your question, Anya, that it's, it's very unusual and I think problematic. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why this case has really gone national is the fact that you have this legal background and like the idea of a dynasty um, operating sort of with a lot of power and maybe a hint of, you know, certainly corruption in this part of the country. And Maybe now we could jump to the murders themselves, where this starts crashing down. And, you know, I'll also note there's also been a lot of coverage around other deaths linked to this family. But what is currently being tried is the murder of Alec Murdoch's wife and son, youngest son. Right. And so uh, what we would call that is familiacide, killing your own family. Very rare, which is, I think, one of the things that makes this case so unusual, rare to sort of uh, annihilate your own family. There's The profile would be called Family Annihilator. And if you watch the cross-examination of Alec Murdoch by Creighton Waters, one of the last questions Mr. Waters asked him is whether or not he was a family annihilator. Yeah, it's, it's a rare profile. It's a, it's a rare type of case. The two that come to mind prior to this would be uh, the Christopher Watts case and then Christian Longo out of Oregon. 
if you believe the prosecutor's case, what happened here was that the Murdoch uh, dynasty started to unravel vis-a-vis Alec Murdoch's drug use. Uh, he, By anyone's account, he was heavily addicted to opioid analgesics, and that's uh, been a big part of this case. And that um, apparently, according to Alec Murdoch, led him to start stealing multi-million dollars of uh, client funds, uh, diverting funds from his clients that should have gone to his clients and taking them for his own personal uh, uses, uh, whether it be drugs or, or what have you. And then in 2019, there was a very high-profile uh, boat accident involving Alec Murdoch's son, Paul Murdoch, in which one of Paul Murdoch's best friends by the name of uh, Anthony Cook, his girlfriend named Mallory Beach, was killed in this boat accident, appears to have been killed by blunt force trauma to the head and, and then drowning. But she disappeared uh, sort of immediately from this, this boat accident. And uh, this boat accident actually played a huge part in the current trial uh, for reasons, reasons we can talk about in a minute. But as a result of this case, Paul Murdoch, who by many people's accounts was sort of a this holy terror of a rich kid who sort of thought he could get away with anything he wanted and had a whale of an alcohol and potentially a drug, drug problem. So Paul Murdoch is then criminally charged in the boat wreck case with the equivalent of DUI manslaughter in a car, uh, but, but in a boat, it were, we call that a buoy, boating under the influence, and then uh, the homicide that went along with it. Very serious charges for, for Paul Murdoch. This was, I believe, the accident was February of 2019. And there was a lot of maneuvering by Alec Murdoch and his father, Randolph Murdoch III, who uh, is affectionately referred to in the family as handsome. Uh, there was a lot of maneuvering by these guys on the night of the accident to try to protect uh, their son and grandson, Paul. And what they did was they showed up at the hospital and uh, tried to make it look like someone other than Paul Murdoch was driving the boat at the time of the accident when it was clear uh, by everyone's account that it was, in fact, Paul. So following that uh, accident and the criminal charges in 2019, apparently Alec Murdoch felt the need to really ramp up the embezzlement from his clients of attorney fees, that behavior really escalated. Then on the June 7th of 2021, what we know is that for the first time, Alec Murdoch was confronted by a member of his law firm about the diversion of client funds in sort of Fargo-esque fashion, the movie Fargo. I understand he sort of you know, minimized and, and diverted his conduct away from the questions and, and acted like this was all a big misunderstanding and a big mistake and, and the money was somewhere, but it was a misunderstanding. And so that was June 7th, 2021. Later that same day, that, that evening, he calls 911 and reports that he finds his son and wife murdered at the family estate which is referred to as Moselle. Uh, at this point in time, most of the family, they, they have multiple houses, but most of the family was living at a uh, private hunting lodge uh, called Moselle, which 
is maybe 15 or 20 minutes from the, the county seat of Hampton in sort of a, a rural part of a rural area to begin with. The police arrive shortly and Alec Murdoch then makes a statement to the police saying that he had been gone and came back and found this tragedy. And what had happened was his son had been killed with a shotgun in a part of the property uh, known as the dog kennels. And then his wife, Maggie, had been shot with a AR rifle, which they refer to in this case as the 300 blackout model, uh, which was the model of the AR rifle that was being used, an unusual assault rifle that they had, sort of a high-end weapon. They can't tell exactly what shotgun was used, but with respect to the 300 blackout, this was a, a gun that the Murdochs had used frequently. This was a family that, again, lived on a hunting lodge, had all kinds of weapons, to include the types of weapons that were used in these homicides. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I think when this first happened, there was a lot of conjecture possibly spread by Murdoch's side of the story, basically, where, you know, they're like, oh, could this be connected to the boat crash, essentially? Someone out for revenge. But, of course, now we know that investigators really started looking at Alec himself at this. Yeah, and so one of the most interesting things about this case to me is Alec Murdoch talking to the police. He talked to them three times, once on the 7th of June, once on the 10th of June. And then once, I believe, about three or four weeks later, these are all recorded. Everything's recorded these days. Any interview that's done by law enforcement is going to be recorded. These were all being recorded. And 
Dave Owens was the law enforcement officer who was doing the interviews, and he works for an agency called SLED, which stands for South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. And you have to remember that Alec Murdoch is a very highly skilled attorney. Uh, Alec Murdoch himself has a background as a prosecutor. Uh, Alec Murdoch has worked hundreds, if not thousands of cases and understands these types of dynamics. Shortly after he calls 911, he calls a member of his law firm who comes down and assists him with the interview. The attorney allows Alec to give a full statement to Dave Owens on that night. And then three days later, Dave Owens comes back and wants to talk to Alec Murdoch again. This time, Alec Murdoch has some much more qualified criminal defense attorneys uh, at his side, the ones who are currently representing him in the trial, uh, who are Dick Harputlian and Jim Griffin. And these are real kind of heavy hitters out of South Carolina. Dick Harputlian is also a state senator. His wife is U.S. ambassador to Slovenia. Um, and Jim Griffin is, um, although he's not necessarily known as being a, a criminal defense attorney, a very highly qualified trial attorney. And these two also coincidentally were Paul Murdoch's criminal defense attorneys for the boat wreck case. So on the second interview, they have Dick and Jim sitting in the back of the patrol vehicle. This interview is all being recorded by the in-dash in camera. And then in the front, you have Alec Murdoch talking to David Owens. He gives another very detailed statement. And then he gives a third statement um, a couple of weeks later, again, with his two attorneys. Now, the decision by his attorneys to let him talk became, I believe, you know, the most cr critical component in this case and really affected everything that happened uh, afterwards including probably even that Alec Murdoch was even charged. You have to remember in a case like this that there were three factors that were, were always going to make Alec Murdoch the chief suspect for these homicides. Number one, he found the bodies. The person who finds the bodies is almost always the suspect. Number two, he called 911, and that is highly related to, but, uh, you know, also involved with number one, person who calls 911 is almost always the suspect. And number three, the husband is always the primary suspect. And of course, he was the husband of, of the deceased and uh, the father of the son in this case. And so right there, that should have been a lot of red flags to these attorneys that this is not going to be an information gathering mission by these police officers, by these detectives, this is going to be an interrogation. This is going to be a hunt for whether or not they can prosecute Alec Murdoch. This kind of reminds me of something Alan Dershowitz said in one of his talks. You always have to assume that your client is guilty uh, in these cases. You don't want to act like they're guilty in your interactions with them. You want to give them the, the benefit of the doubt. But you have to assume that they're guilty and the reason that you have to assume that they're guilty is that if you if you don't, you potentially could make some mistakes. And the mistake that was made here was that they allowed Alec Murdoch to talk to law enforcement multiple times. And what that did was lock Alec Murdoch into a false alibi. In a case like this, uh, in a murder case, the timeline is always critical. And, and the prosecution and the police are always going to try to establish 
a timeline of who was when, where, at what time, um, to sort of try to eliminate and, you know, exclude and include people who could have possibly committed this crime by, you know, establishing who was where and when. And the timeline in this case is absolutely critical because what Alec Murdoch had told the police was he had been home that day, pretty much, you know, most of, the, of that evening, but for the one hour time period, the one hour window in which his wife and his son uh, were murdered. And uh, what Alex said was he was over at a property in a town called Almeida visiting his mother. Um, I, I believe that was about a 15 or, or 20 minute drive each way. He originally told the police that he was there for an hour and a half. Uh, that was a lie because they were able to get the, the OnStar data and his cell phone data, which showed that wasn't true. By early July, you know, late July of 2021, Alec Murdoch was locked into this uh, false alibi. And the most important part of that alibi was that he had not gone down to the dog kennels uh, the day of the homicides. He was adamant about that. And he was asked about that in every interview, whether or not he had gone down to the kennels, which was the, the scene of the homicide again, on the day of the homicides. And he was adamant that he had not until, you know, this 1020 time when he had discovered the bodies. Well, I believe it was about seven months later, law enforcement was able to unlock Paul Murdoch's phone and get some of his digital, digital data from Snapchat. And it turns out that Paul Murdoch had made a video uh, that he posted to Snapchat, excuse me, uh, of him down at the dog kennels at, I believe, about 8.45 uh, that evening. And the coroner has the time of death between 9 and 9.30. In this video, um, you can see Paul Murdoch messing with one of their hunting dogs. And you can hear Maggie Murdoch in the background talking about another one of their hunting dogs. And she's talking to someone and... You can clearly hear uh, if you were uh, had been watching the trial and listened to Mr. Murdoch's testimony. You could clearly hear that that was Alec Murdoch also talking to Paul and Maggie Murdoch down at the scene of the homicide right before uh, the murders occurred. And again, this was something that Alec Murdoch had denied doing. He had denied being down at the kennels uh, anytime uh, in immediate proximity prior to the homicides occurring. He said he hadn't been down there that day. I, I was just going to ask you, I mean, we're just talking and I, I'd love to get your opinion and maybe you, you can kind of keep going over some of the facts of the case, but I'd love to, I mean, do you think this is a strong case against this man? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of smoke. Um, it doesn't sound like it's very much a physical case, more of a circumstantial case, but I mean, a lot of this stuff looks pretty bad for Alec Murdoch, in my opinion. I'd, I'd love to know like, what your assessment of it is. It's, it's absolutely a circumstantial case. But most homicides are circumstantial cases. Uh, most homicides don't have witnesses. Most homicides don't have a lot of direct evidence because the primary witness is deceased at the con conclusion of the perpetrator's conduct. And by nature, those types of crimes are normally done in secret. And... By their nature, those types of crimes are normally done in, in, committed in a fashion where the perpetrator hopes to not be apprehended. 
So I don't think it's a huge problem for the state in this case that it's a circumstantial case. I think this is a very strong circumstantial case for the state. My own personal opinion is that he probably did it. I, I think there is very strong evidence of it. I think the strongest evidence in the case is him lying about being down at the kennels on the night of the homicides and the Snapchat video that Paul had taken with his voice on there. So that puts him at the scene of the crime and the, it puts him there with no one else other than the two decedents right before the homicide happens. I also think it's a strong case. And one thing that I think the listeners should know is that if you didn't watch the cross-examination of Alec Murdoch, it, it was fascinating. And no matter what happens in this case, Alec Murdoch is going to prison for a long time. And what happened in the cross-examination was Creighton Waters kind of went to the bullet points first. He said, the reason you're testifying is that you have to explain why you lied about the most important fact of the case. And they kind of had some back and forth about that. And then that, that kind of flowed into Creighton Waters asking Alec, Alec Murdoch about all the times that he stole from his clients. And so that becomes a very important aspect of this case for two reasons. One, what, one thing Creighton Waters was trying to do is to show the jury that this is a man who will lie and steal and cheat anytime it's to his benefit, that he's good at lying, that he can look at someone with a straight face, look at him right in the eye as he's telling them that the money that they're supposed to get is, is no longer going to go to them and then give them some false reason why that's not going to happen. And, and so he's establishing that he's a good liar and that he's sort of, you know, a scumbag, someone who would, thinks low enough of the legal system that he would act in such a reprehensible way. Another thing Creighton Waters was doing there was he was going ahead and getting confessions from Alec Murdoch from all these other cases that are pending. So Alec Murdoch also has 99 uh, charges pending pertaining to financial crimes, all of which he has now confessed to under oath. And so that's not going to bode well for Alec Murdoch. So he has that going for him. And then, again, I think the strongest piece of evidence for the state here is that Alec was down at the scene of the homicide right before it occurred and that he lied about it. And, and to me, why would he possibly do that unless he uh, had committed the crimes? There's also some, some very bad facts for the state here. I think probably the worst fact for the state is the two guns. The defense has made a huge deal over the fact that uh, there had to have been two shooters because there were two guns used. The people were killed in close proximity to each other and both in temporal proximity to each other, right right after each other. And the, the, the reason they hypothesize about that is had one been killed, the other would have taken off right away had they had the opportunity to. Therefore, they know they were killed right next in time to each other by two different weapons. So the two guns is probably the best fact for the defense. The prosecution is also also has a lot of other good facts, I believe, the circumstances of, of Alex's life leading up to the homicide. Um, and, and what the prosecution is really trying to do is to convince the jury of a motive. You know, when we talk about motives in homicide cases, 
you don't have to prove motives if you're a prosecutor. You don't have to be a mind reader. You don't have to prove why someone did what they did. I think potentially a mistake the prosecution is making in this case is spending so much time trying to convince the jury that the motive the prosecution believes was the motive is the correct motive. And I think that one of the things that that has the effect of doing is sort of making motive an element of the case, not overtly, but sort of subtly, sort of uh, something that the, that, the, that the jury is going to want to agree upon, even though they don't have to agree upon. And I think that's dangerous for the prosecution to add elements to the case that they don't have to prove. Uh, that kind of reminds me of the Casey Anthony case and the prosecution. He spent a lot of time in that case trying to pr- prove what the cause of death of uh, Kaylee Anthony was. And he didn't have to prove cause of, cause of death. All he had to prove was that Casey caused the death, not how she caused it. And, and so I think the jury in that case, you know, and the defense lawyer in that case really spent a lot of time talking about cause of death in the closing and that the prosecutor didn't prove it. So I think in this case, in the closing, we're going to have the defense talking a lot about how the prosecution failed to prove motive, which again, the prosecution doesn't have to prove motive in a case like this. You know, I I think the prosecution where they did well on cross-examination was two places. I, I really think they got, Alec Murdoch sort of dead to rights on these financial crimes and making him look like someone who is a, a very low moral character. And I really think that the highlight for Creighton Waters was really hammering Alec Murdoch on the timeline. The timeline in this case, once Alec Mur- Murdoch's new story came out, the timeline on this case became even more unforgiving than it had been previously. The timeline is, is is really so tight in this case that it's going to be tough for the jury to believe that someone could have come onto the property undetected, committed these homicides, left the property all in the short period of time that Alec was gone. I don't know what's going to happen. If I had to guess uh, what the outcome would be, I would guess hung jury. I think Alec Murdoch did... did uh, very well on the stand in, in a lot of respects. The strategy was sort of to go all in and to own everything except for the murders, which again, you know, has its pitfalls. If that worked, you know, to, to sort of humanize him and, and, and make him understandable to the jury, then I, th- I think the prosecutor is in trouble. And, and again, it's a murder case. All they need to do is get one person for a hung jury and I think the likelihood that all 12 of these people are going to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Alec Murdoch committed these crimes is low for a lot of reasons, including, you know, the power and control this family has over the region. I was going to ask about that because it's like a two-sided thing, I think, where you have this family that was incredibly powerful for years, like really, truly a dynasty in the legal system in this part of South Carolina. And then on the other hand, you have the fact that this story went national, you know, well before Murdoch was even publicly being named as a suspect or arrested or anything, uh, you know, with a lot of really negative facts about that family and their the goings on there and, and Paul's boat crash. And and then also later on, Alec Murdoch's bizarre 
suicide fake murder attempt situation that kind of came on the radar. And like, I guess as a defense attorney, when there's so much negative information getting out there about your client on a national basis and the national media is really running with this. And then you have, you know, I mean, like, how does that balance out in your opinion? Because it just seemed like this was all over the media well in advance. And would that have really hurt the defense? Or, you know, is that balanced out by the fact that they were very powerful locally? So perhaps that's also going to influence the jury. Well, that's a tough question to answer because I I don't know these people personally and I'm not from the region, but in general, you know, you don't want a lot of negative publicity in in a case like this. There were all kinds of things going on in the Murdoch family, none of them good in the years preceding uh, this trial. I believe that the way that they combated that in this case was by putting Alec Murdoch on the stand. And I think they kind of had to put him on the stand on this case, primarily because he had to get up there and he had to explain why he was in that video right before the homicides occurred and why he had lied about it, basically. Those were the two strongest pieces of evidence for the prosecution by the time it became time to put Alec Murdoch on the stand. And there had been a lot of publicity about that, that he was this liar. And he, you know, oh, I'm sure you guys, like I had, had seen those interviews over and over on either Dateline or on HBO or Netflix of him telling the police that he wasn't not down at the kennels unequivocally. And then going forward and showing the video that Paul had taken with what was clearly Alec Murdoch down at the kennels. And so he was caught in this lie. And so I think the primary problem of the negative publicity was that everyone had known that he had lied about his alibi. And again, this goes back to the issue of the attorneys, you know, believing in their client too much and allowing him to talk to the police over and over again, close in time uh, to the homicide before they had any information about, you know, whether or not Alec was telling the truth. They were faced with a situation where they had to put Alec Murdoch on the stand because of his lies, because they had been so uh, publicized by the media. I think everyone was still surprised uh, that he took the stand. I know from following true crime, it's often stated that if you don't have to have your client take the stand, maybe you don't want to take that risk. But could you speak to that as far as strategic, why that is so risky? But I mean, at the same time, Alec Murdoch was a former prosecutor. He is a former, you know, he is an attorney. So maybe he's kind of uniquely going to be a case where that is a good idea. Yeah, I would say very risky proposition in any case. What I tell my clients is like, look, if you take the stand, the case is all going to be about how you did on the stand and and whether or not the jury believes you. And I think that's totally true. And I think that is what this case is now uh, going to boil down to. I, I think it is a rare situation to put a client on the stand on a case this serious particularly then when you're going to open them up to horrendous cross-examination, which is going to certainly cause Alec Murdoch to serve many years in prison for embezzling from his clients. I mean, that, that those cases are locked in. But I, I think, in, again, in this case, they felt that they had no other alternative, given that they felt that they had a credible explanation why Alec Murdoch was down at the kennels and why he had repeatedly lied to the police about being down at the kennels right before 
the homicides had occurred. And so I think they, I'm sure they struggled with this. I am sure Alec Murdoch had a lot of, a lot of control and a lot to say over whether or not he was going to take the stand. I'm sure there was a lot of back and forth and, and, you know, lost sleep over whether or not he was going to take the stand. But ultimately, they made the decision to put him on the stand. And I think the case now comes down to how he did and whether or not the jury believed him. It was probably the toughest cross-examination Creighton Waters has ever had. It lasted a, a day and a half. Probably, I, not probably, I know it was because I've been involved in cases like this with, you know, where witnesses are on the stand forever. I know it was exhausting for Creighton Waters. I know it was exhausting for Alec Murdoch. And it became this battle of the wits. You know, as you mentioned, Alec is a highly seasoned, highly skilled attorney, former prosecutor, probably knew where Creighton Waters was going with every line of questioning. All in all, I think Alec Murdoch did very well. And most of this was on direct, you know, sort of the uh, emotional reaction that was consistent with the emotional reaction uh, throughout the, the case. So I think his behavior in court uh, when he described what had happened to his family was consistent with his historical behavior, which I think was very helpful to the defense, how he described what he saw, how he was crying during his presentation. I think he did very well there. I think he did very, very well when, uh, and I, I never, I don't think Creighton Waters ever should have gone here. But I think uh, Alec Murdoch did extremely well. And this was probably the highlight for him when he was talking about the alternative theories of the case. I have no idea why Creighton Waters started asking Alec what he thought had happened to his wife and kids. That's not relevant what Alec thinks happened. It's speculation. Unless Alec knows what happened, it's not, it's not relevant testimony. And Alec, I think, a very, in a very articulate fashion, was able to tell the jury the problems associated with the boat wreck, the threats, and sort of the singling out for this uh, bullying type of behavior that Paul had received as a result of his perceived involvement uh, in driving the boat that killed Mallory Beach. I think that was probably the highlight. And then I also think he really, really got Creighton Waters when Creighton was saying over and over again, you know, isn't it convenient that we're hearing this story about how you lied about your alibi for the first time after you've heard all this testimony. And then I really think Alec got him when he said, well, we reached out to you and wanted to talk to you some more, but you wouldn't talk to us. If that's true, I think that's the real, and I, I'm, I'm sure it is. And I'm, I'm guessing they're going to call an investigator or something to corroborate that. But I think that's a real problem for the state and, and it kind of throws some cold water on this, the strongest point of the, the state's case, which is Alec Murdoch lying about his alibi and then changing his testimony. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I think the reason that Alec Murdoch gave to why he changed his testimony, I don't think that was, I didn't believe that. I don't think that was very effective. So what he, he gave, he gave a million reasons and it was, and I think Creighton Waters did a fairly, fairly good job of 
beating up Alec Murdoch about all the different reasons and how convenient it is about how now he has all this ever-expanding list of reasons of why he lied to the police. But the reasons that he gave, I don't think were very, didn't, didn't make a lot of sense, right? He said that he was a, a drug addict, that he was paranoid. He said that he didn't trust SLED, which doesn't make any sense because he's been a law enforcement officer and an officer of the court. And his family has been synonymous with law enforcement for the last hundred years. He said he thought this officer was involved in a case where the defendant was set up 10 years ago. And he had all of these you know, convenient reasons for why he lied to the police about where he had been. I think one place that Creighton Waters really could have got him is he should have asked him, well, well how did you know this was so important? Whether or not you're at the kennels at 845, how, how did you know what the time of death was if you weren't there? Alec knew that the time of death being around nine o'clock was super important as he's talking to the officers at 10, 30, 11 o'clock, right after he calls 911. And I think, I think that was sort of a missed opportunity for Creighton Waters to sort of point out the fact to Alec that unless he knew the time of death, it wouldn't matter whether or not he was down at the kennels at 845. And the only way he could have known the cause of death is to cause the death himself. So maybe he'll bring that up in closing. I also, uh, there's also been a lot of noise. I, I think there was another missed opportunity by Creighton Waters here. I always try to think, what would I do if I was the prosecutor? What would I do if I was the defense lawyer? And I want to say with a caveat that these cases are so stressful to be in front of the jury and be in front of the court and trying these, and you're always going to miss stuff. It's super easy to, you know, for me to sit here 2,000 miles away from, or 3,000 miles away or however far I am away from the trial watching it on TV, playing armchair quarterback, saying, oh, you did this wrong, oh, you did that wrong. But one thing that I think Creighton Waters missed here, and, and I don't know if he's going to bring this up in closing, but uh, the defense has made a huge, huge deal about the angle and trajectory of the bullets. They have tried to show that the shooter was someone who was in the 5.2 to 5.4 range by what angle the bullet entered the bodies at, right? And, and so what they would do anytime there is firearm-involved homicide like this is to try to figure out where the people were when they were shot, what the tra trajectory of the bullets were uh, when they entered the bodies, and where the perpetrator of the crimes was when uh, the bullets were shot. And all of these things are interrelated. And, and if you know one, you might be able to tell uh, you know, some facts about the other. And so what they have done in this case is to try to say, well, first of all, Alec Murdoch is 6'5". When you see him in court, he's taller than anyone else. Tall, uh, you know, handsome, very, you know, sort of uh, muscular, manly looking guy, very uh, imposing presence in court. And the defense has spent days and days uh, with experts talking about how the shooter had to be 5'2 to 5'4". And we know this because of the angle that the bullets entered the body. Murdoch testified that he drove the golf cart over to the, the uh, dog kennels in his new version of events right before the homicide and then drove it back to the house, then gets in his car and then goes to his mom's house at Alameda when the homicides allegedly occurred. What I am guessing is if Murdoch is sitting in that golf cart, I bet his head's about 5'2". It's so easy, and I, and I think Creighton Waters really should have uh, highlighted the fact that 
all Alec Murdoch would have had to do was to change the angle of his body or how he was holding the weapon, and he could have made himself firing from a, a similar angle as someone who was standing five two tall, you know, standing straight up at five foot two. So I think there were some missed opportunities there for the prosecutor. And of course, they can't call him back to the stand. He's he's come and gone. Right. I know, but that's a really good point. And it's also highlighting, you know, Alec Murdoch is not your average defendant. This is somebody who has tried cases himself on the prosecution side. So he might have more knowledge about how to get away with murder than perhaps your most, you know, most people, you know, if he is guilty, of course, he's hasn't been convicted yet, but certainly a lot of smoke in this one, it seems like. I think the timeline and the, the digital footprint of Alec is extremely unforgiving in this case. And, and I think that uh, if he gets convicted, it's going to be because of that. The digital footprint includes him, you know, speeding off to his mom's house, going 75, um, 78 miles an hour on a country road, speeding back walking very quickly throughout the house, taking a bunch of steps right before he leaves to go to his mom's house, not taking his phone with him down to the kennels, the Paul Murdoch Snapchat. So yeah, he, there's a lot of evidence that I think circumstantially shows that he did this. There's a lot of public discourse on this case, people following on social media, people following within the true crime space. Are there any mistakes, myths, or misconceptions that you've been seeing spread around about this case and the ongoing trial so far that you think people should, you know, perhaps comes from like a lack of legal knowledge or anything like that? This case has been so well covered by so many different people. I think, I think it's really well covered. I think it's sort of unique in that. And there's been a lot of different takes on that. So that, that's a hard question to answer. I don't think this is a misconception. Maybe that's the wrong word for it. But I think a lot of people that we've heard from who are interested in this case seem pretty well convinced of Alec Murdoch's guilt. And I think some of the issues that you've raised are very interesting and kind of indicate that this could still possibly go either way or even resulting into sort of a very unsatisfying finish, like a hung jury. And maybe if you could kind of get into what happens when there is like a lack of a conclusion in a high profile case. I mean, would you expect the prosecutor to bring charges again if there was a hung jury? Or is this a situation where they may just be like, well, we got him for years on the financial crime, so I guess we're just going to go with that? Well, I think they would certainly try him again if there were a hung jury. They wouldn't have to bring charges again. Uh, they would just have to uh, try him again. The charges uh, would not be dismissed following a hung jury. It would just be a mistrial. And following a mistrial, what, what what could happen is as soon as the parties are ready, the, the case could go back to trial. And that's really ultimately in the unilateral discretion of the district attorney's office, of the solicitor in this case, whether or not to uh, retry a case after a hung jury. I think they would in this case because, as you said, it's a very high-profile case. You know, most people think Alec Murdoch is guilty. I think Alec Murdoch is guilty. I don't know how you, where you guys weigh in on that, but that was kind of my thoughts. If I were the prosecutor, I would certainly retry this case. It could come down to you know what the what the spread is on the hung jury. If it were uh, eleven to one uh, hung in favor of the defendant, you know eleven people wanted to acquit, one person wanted to convict, which would still be a hung jury. I think that would be a less likely scenario uh, for a retrial than if 11 people 
voted to convict and one person voted to acquit. And, and so what I always do when I have a hung jury, and they're pretty rare. I, I don't know, maybe had a half dozen in my career, if that, maybe four or five. I, I have no way of going, knowing without going back and looking. But what I always do is ask the judge to poll the jury. And, and what that means is, you know, ask each individual juror what their verdict was. So I know, you know, was this a 210-39 uh, split in favor of the defense or was it a you know, 210 Three nine split in favor of the prosecution, and the reason I want to know that information is, you know, what is my likelihood of being able to win the case going back forward? Uh, what is my likelihood of wanting to resolve this case if it's going to be retried? Do I want to look at trying to get some lesser charges in a plea bargain? I'd be more inclined to do that if the hung jury was in favor of the prosecution. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, no, I, I think Kevin and I are both leaning towards guilt at this point. Obviously, he hasn't been convicted yet. But I mean, it seems like they have a very strong circumstantial case against the man. And there's a lot of, you know, the, that's pretty hard to overcome just from our perspectives. And yeah, yeah I think we're, we're in the same boat as you where it's like, I don't know if we're convinced that he's going to be convicted. But I think we're both pretty much no, that looks pretty bad. <laughs> and and I just like one one thing, just as a defense attorney, how surreal is it to see a person who was like a prosecutor being charged with like this really high profile, you know, horrible homicide? I mean, that just must I mean, that, that I mean, I imagine that is relatively rare. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. I, at any, any time prosecutors get charged with crimes there's a reaction from the defense bar oftentimes the people aren't surprised that, that a particular prosecutor got in trouble you know you could maybe guess which prosecutor uh, is, is going to engage in that kind of conduct i'm not talking about homicides i'm just talking about it in trouble and so in my career what i've seen a lot is you know, prosecutors get duis prosecutors get domestic violence charges prosecutors get drug charges I can't think of a prosecutor charged with a homicide anywhere near my jurisdiction. We've also seen lots of former prosecutors who have become defense lawyers get in trouble with the law. And so it's rare, but it does happen. There's a perception in the defense bars that prosecutors think that they're above the law. Whether or not that's true, you know, is subject to interpretation and opinion. And there is a perception uh, amongst defense lawyers that when prosecutors become defense lawyers, which is frequent after they leave or retire from the prosecutor's office for whatever reason, that the former prosecutor working as the defense lawyer still thinks that they're above the bar, uh, above the law. You know, you, you do see this happen. I think that there is, that the courts want accountability. I think that. Prosecutors, defense lawyers, police officers, judges, anybody who is an officer of the court, anybody who works within the criminal justice system is going to be held to a higher standard uh, by the court system than someone who is not so affiliated. You know, the reason being they're, they're put in a position of power, they're put in a position of trust, and when they breach, breach that power or trust, I think the perception is that there should be more consequences to pay. Anytime a lawyer or a prosecutor uh, gets in trouble, it's a serious matter and the courts are going to handle it seriously and not necessarily going to get swept under the rug. 
I wanted to ask, is there anything we didn't ask you about that you think it's important for the listeners to understand or, or anything like that? You know, I, I think in this case, I, I don't believe that there are any other viable suspects that, that the defense has brought forth. To me, I, I think, again, I think the timeline in this case is so harmful to the defense that it really, in my mind, draws into question that anyone other than Alex Murdoch could have committed this. I, I'm fascinated to see what the jury does with this. It's hard to assess where they are without being able to look at them and see their reactions. Even if I could see that, it, it still could be hard to assess where they are in any given case. But for those of you who aren't watching the trial, in these cases, the court TV or, or whatever, you know, MSNBC, whatever channel is showing it, never shows the jury, never names the jury on TV for privacy protection. So it's hard to assess how this case is going in the eyes of the jury without seeing them. I did hear from someone who was in the courtroom that at one point when Alec Murdoch was crying, that a couple of the members of the jury, a couple of the female members of the jury were, cry were crying at the same time, which I think is a very bad sign for the prosecutor. I'm super uh, anxious and, and excited to see uh, what the outcome of this case is. I think it's the trial of the century in South Carolina, and I think it's one of the trials of the century in the United States. Thanks so much to our source for his legal insights. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.